You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. One small business, two small businesses, you know, not a major impact. But if, if this is occurring every day and, and we're talking about thousands of attacks and we're not able to measure it effectively, what if what impact is that long term going to have on national security and the economy? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Curtis Minder returns. He is the CEO of GroupSense, and we're going to be talking about the impact of new legislation on SMBs. All right, Joe, let's jump into uh, our show here. Before we get to our stories, we have some follow-up. Yeah, actually, it's not follow-up. It's kind of a new development. Hmm. So uh, Elon Musk has purchased Twitter. Yes. Right? And uh, you're a big Twitter user, right? I am. So how, how do you feel about Elon purchasing Twitter? Now, our Twitter now being an Elon Musk property. I'm not happy. You're not I'm happy. S- I'm sad. Are you? Yeah. Dave, I got... He has a proposal, though, that might make you happy. Elon Musk has a lot of ideas. Right. Go on. One of them is this uh, blue check mark for eight bucks a month. Yeah. And Elon says we have to uh, pay the bills somehow. Apparently, yeah. advertising is not enough. Yeah. Uh, and Stephen King, I saw the, uh, an exchange. Uh, he was saying that if if Twitter says I need to pay to be authenticated with the blue check, then I'm out. Yeah. Um, and— I don't know how I feel about this. First off, one of the things that Elon said is you'll get fewer ads. For I don't, eight, yeah, I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, for eight bucks a month, <laughs> I need no ads. That's number one. Okay. Okay, because I know you don't make eight bucks a month on my using Twitter right now. Okay. You, you'll be making more money with me. Do me a favor. Don't show me any of those damn promoted ads. I hate those promoted tweets. I can't stand them. Okay. They're terrible. Um, what about my ability? Can I block non-verified accounts? on Twitter. Cause I understand what he's trying to do here. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that if you have a non-verified account, your account will be taken less seriously. And then you will not be, you'll be more likely to be a bot. Maybe it's part of his, his move to get bots off the platform. Could be. Um, but first off, do you think $8 a month is a good value for a blue check? Well, I think it's a misguided uh, approach. I okay. mean, First of all, I already pay for Twitter. I pay for Twitter Blue, which uh, gives me, um, let's see, what does it give me? It gives me the ability to post longer videos. That was actually the main reason that I got Twitter Blue. Okay. Was so that I could paste last year's um, CyberWire Christmas video, uh, which was longer than two minutes. So if you pay the $3 a month, you can post longer videos. There's some other benefits. There are some uh, content you get without uh, subscriptions and things like that. Some, there's some ad-free content you can get for having Twitter Blue. It's 3 bucks a month. Not a big deal. Right. So I'm fine with it. And I get a lot of value out of Twitter. So I was like, yeah, 3 bucks a month. You know, let me throw a little money Twitter's way, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but that's different from a verified checkmark. I will tell you, I have applied for a verified checkmark twice right. and been turned down both times. Right. The first time, I totally understand why I wasn't 
I, I was, you know, there's no reason for them to give me one, but I figured out oh, what have I got to lose. The second time, I sent them everything they asked for uh, from my position at the CyberWire. Right. And I have, uh, you know, if you go to the CyberWire website, there I'm listed, and I sent them a link to that, and, you know, all those kinds of things. I'd say the only thing I'm missing is, uh, like, a Wikipedia page on me or something yeah, like that, you know. you and I don't have Wikipedia pages. No, we do not. And and I'm whatever, I'm fine with that. Um, I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> so, I think... The mistake here is that, to me, the blue check mark and the verification is a way for users of Twitter to know that who they're dealing with is actually who they say they are, because there's some level of scrutiny that goes into that. Right. You have to send them a copy of your ID. Um, this is not that. To $8 to get a blue check mark is just, for $8, I can say I'm anybody. Right. And so this well, is going to be Well, we don't know how gonna this gonna is going to work, though. No, we don't. But why conflate the two? Right? Keep the blue check mark. Keep the verified accounts for people who truly need it. Uh, celebrities, uh, journalists, you know, people for whom we need to know right. that the information we're getting from them is from them and not from someone pretending to be them. Right. And then find some way to bring value to an $8 a month subscription. Maybe it is no ads. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. But I think he's coming at this the wrong way by conflating the two. And I suspect it's going to end up blowing up in his face. Hmm. Um, I think, and actually it's funny, Ben Yellen and I talked about this on uh, over on the Caveat podcast this oh, week. Did. I think that Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is very much like Donald Trump's run for the presidency of the United States. And that is, it is a PR effort that went horribly uh, wrong. <laughs> I, I, like, I don't believe, I don't believe that Donald Trump really ever wanted to be president of the United States. I think he wanted all the attention and publicity that came with running for president of the United States. And it just spun out of control. And I think the same thing has happened here with Elon Musk, where he was, there was a certain amount of bravado, and he said, oh, why don't I just buy it? Ha, ha, ha. And the next thing he knows, the SEC is like, you've said things, and <laughs> so you're on the hook here right. to buy this company. And now he owns it. He's in a terrible position. He's loaded it up with debt. And I'm really afraid that something that has become, that I enjoy as part of my day and, you know, people I communicate with, I think there's a good chance that it could uh, really go down the tubes. Hmm. So. We'll see. Um, I don't know if it's going to go down the tubes. I think the platform is always going to have value. Um, I read somewhere, you know, he paid, what, $44 billion for it? Yeah, somehow? something like that. And then um, somebody valued the company at like $12 billion. Yeah. Uh, which I don't I, I don't know. I haven't looked at what their business model, you know, what their, what their, what their revenue and profits are and all that stuff. Uh, I know what their business model is, but I don't know what their revenues are and profits are. I, I really don't. Like I've said many, many times, I really don't like social media, mm -hmm. um, and I don't participate in it. I was just curious about this about this ability to um, to just buy a blue check mark and get your get your opinion on because I know you are a big Twitter user. Yeah. So like I said, I think eight dollars a month if you can find value in that, great. Make that an option. Uh, I also saw somebody did the math on this and like. If everybody who's verified right now paid $8 a month, it would only be something like $35 million, which is— A year? Yeah, hmm. which is not—I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. That, right. that doesn't even service the debt that, that uh, the company's been loaded up with. So I don't know. There's, you know. They're moving very fast. They're changing things very fast, and you know, 
Please hold on to the bar. Here we right. go. <laughs> please hold on to the bar. Yeah. All right. You want to move into the stories now? Let's please. <laughs> I, I'm over here poking the bear with a short stick. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh. Right. I didn't mean to bring you down, Dave. I'm no, sorry. No, it's okay. All right. Well, I do have another story, and it is another social media story, but uh, we're not going to be talking about uh, about about Twitter again. We're going to be talking about Facebook. Mm-hmm. And my story comes from Mike Krafsik at WWMT in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Hmm. I picked this story solely because it comes out of Kalamazoo, and mm-hmm. Kalamazoo is fun to say. Kalamazoo, yeah. Uh, but it's an interesting scam that's going on. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the story, and you can watch the video uh, that explains it. But there's some... Things that are some missing in terms of the reporting here, because these reporters are not cybersecurity experts, right? Sure. They're just journalists. Yeah. Um, but there's an ongoing chain of this scam. And what happens is there is a uh, they, they got in touch with this, this first victim who didn't want to be identified. Mm-hmm. And he wound up sending money to somebody he thought was a Facebook friend. Okay. But after he sends the money, his account got compromised. His Facebook account. His Facebook account okay. got compromised. And they used that account to do the same things to everybody else that was his, uh, that was his fr- Facebook friend. Mm-hmm. Then they interview another woman named Ruth who says she was targeted by the same scam. She got a text message over Facebook Messenger asking for $200. Mm-hmm. And then she gets a Facebook Messenger video call of her friend that is— uh, Looks like her friend, his mouth is moving and everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's a short video call, only 18 seconds long, but she becomes convinced that it's him looking for $200. Okay. So she actually sends $200 to her friend via his phone number because she has his contacts. Right. And she looks up his phone number in Cash App and they go, that's this guy. And she sends $200. And the guy on the other end goes, no, 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 that's not me. So the scammer got upset. This was actually a scam. Hmm. I don't. It doesn't really say if she actually sent the money to her friend, but I'm assuming that she did. Hmm. So she's probably not out that money. She could probably get that money back from her friend. Okay. Um, but here's what I think is happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think it's spreading kind of like a virus. Of course, there's talk on in the uh, in the article and on the video about this being a deep fake technology, but I hmm. don't think that this is, this is a deep fake technology. So okay. here's here's what I think happens. Once I've compromised someone's account, everybody gets a video call, right? Somewhere there has to be a first video call. Right. Right? During that video call, it's very short. It's only 18 seconds or something like that. But I, as the bad or the bad guy, is recording the video call. Some they have some means, some screen recording that they're that they're doing. Oh, I see. Right? Yeah. And then they are editing that video call, taking the audio out of it, and then they try to compromise your account. Right. So let's say I'm targeting Dave Bittner. I know that you're not on Facebook anymore, Dave. Yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> but uh, let's say I'm targeting you and I call you up and you're the first guy and I, I just try to do a video call. You think it's actually uh, your your friend Bob, but it's mm-hmm. actually bad, bad guy Joe on the other end. Yeah. And I record your video. Right. Um, during the call, and then I, I I use like OBS Studio or something like that, which is an open source and freely available screen recording um, tool yeah. that you can use. And I take that video and edit it in uh, maybe Shotcut, which is another open source and free tool that lets me edit videos. Okay. And then I I call I get you to compromise your account by sending you a phishing link somehow. Yeah. 
And then I call all of your friends and I sh- when I when I show the video, when I call them, when I do the video call with them, I actually feed, instead of a camera feed, I feed in your video of you talking and your lips moving. Right. And it becomes more convincing. Right. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I think that's what's happening here. Huh. So it's 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 an interesting scam. Of course, Mike Krasig reaches out to Meta, and Meta says, we strongly encourage people to be wary of unexpected, unusual messages and calls from existing contacts and report suspicious messages and friend requests to Meta right away so we can take action. I said, that ought to do it. Thanks, Meta. (laughs) Yeah, right. Great work. Great work, guys. Um, Yeah. This reminds me of the, like an updated and enhanced version of the old thing that I saw Many times uh, where a friend's account, let's say Facebook account, would be compromised. Right. And I'd get a message from them that would say, Dave, I'm stuck in England and I lost my passport. Will you send me $50? Right. Uh, you know, I'm desperate. And it, and it's a scam. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing, but now they have a video of it. A right. A video of, right. of your friend. So, so it actually looks like they're video calling. That's you. right. So if I get that message and uh-huh. then I get a video call from that friend— and I see moving video of that friend, and I think to myself, oh, my friend must be having trouble with their audio. Uh-huh. But now it just reinforces that that really is my friend. Right. And I'm much more likely to send the money. Right. That, and that's exactly what happened to Ruth. She talks about in the article about how she was, uh, how she was convinced that this was her friend. Uh, and fortunately, she sent the money via the, via the phone number rather than the account that the scammer uh, gave her. Yeah. You know, Dave, when we started doing um, Zoom calls for regular meetings uh, once the pandemic started, yeah, I uh, I recorded a Zoom call of just me, right? Yeah, and put that on full screen so I could just get a, a video of me sitting there, and I moved my eyes by starting by looking directly at the camera, uh-huh. and then I moved my eyes around the room, uh-huh. and then I looked directly back at the camera. Yeah, right. But I was recording the Zoom call at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when that Zoom call was over, I had a video of me looking at the camera, looking all the way around, and then looking back at the camera. Right. Right? So then I took that video, and I made that my background on Zoom. Yes. So, I've, I've heard of this. Yes. So now— Dastardly, Joe. Dastardly. Right. Now I'm sitting there uh, in the meeting, and I'm just playing a video of me looking at the camera and looking around. And it's important that you start by looking at the camera and end by looking at the camera. Mm-hmm. And I actually did use Shotcut to edit that, edit that back up. <laughs> and then I sat there, and then I had to talk on the, on the meeting. So I turned my microphone on and started talking. And somebody goes, Joe, your lips aren't moving. And then I turned my camera, and I go, well, I have a background here. And uh, that got a, a, big, busted. Uh, a big laugh. Uh, it wasn't so, so much busted. I was hoping that would happen, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I just wanted to demonstrate the the proof of concept to everybody. You know, I, I, I heard of a lot of students doing that during the yeah pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I did, I actually I didn't hear about anybody doing that. I was pretty proud that I came up with that on my own. But I'm sure that you know, like I've had so many other great ideas that have just been taken away by other people because they came up with it and they've made <laughs> millions by it. But there's no way somebody can make millions by that. But I thought this story was very interesting and it a, very, is. a very similar take on that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, a, it's an there. extra level of sophistication, but also it effort is. on their part. Yeah. Uh, taking the time to do that, but it's, I can see how it would work. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, my story this week actually uh, comes from my own life. Okay. <laughs> so, I love the ones that come from our lives. Oh, Joe, 
Um, my dear, dear father. Yes. Who is 88 years old. Uh, and I love very much. And, um, but he is techni- technologically challenged. Correct. I am his, as I suspect you probably are for members of your family, I am his number one source of tech support. Yes. As I often say when I answer the phone, and it's my dad, hello, Dave's lifetime unlimited tech support. <laughs> Dave speaking, how may I help you? <laughs> so uh, he calls me up and he says, uh, I got a problem, Dave. Uh, I got a problem. Uh, I got this uh, email from Best Buy. And they're saying that I owe them uh, $500. I'm like, Dad, okay, forward me the email. <laughs> I said, don't do anything. Don't right. do anything. He said, well, I've been trying to call the number all day. Oh, no. Yeah. He said, I tried to call him yesterday, and it's just a busy signal. And I've been trying to call him all day today, and it's still a busy signal. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid you know, the email says, so let me, let me just back up a little bit. So right. I got the email from him. Uh, and it says invoice uh, from Best Buy, Best Buy and the Geek Squad. It is dated. Uh, there's a date on it from the date that they sent this to him. Uh-huh. Uh, it says, hello, customer. We respect you choosing our offerings. We would like to let you understand that your prior PC safety plans auto renewal is today. And you will be charged $499.99, which will be deducted robotically from your saved bank account. And then it says Geek Squad service price four ninety nine ninety nine payment method auto debit purchase online for cancellation of the subscription or refund policy contact us on our twenty four seven helpline number and then there's the phone number and that was the phone number he was calling right so I'm guessing that he got lucky that this phone number had already been compromised had already been shut down that they were using this phone number. It could be that it was overwhelmed with calls. Right. I don't know. That's One my of, fear on this. Is right. That this campaign was so successful that they can't handle the call volume. Right. Right. But let me tell you, Joe, I get this call from my dad, and this is real to him. Right. He's a, he's called his bank. Right. To make sure that the money hadn't come out of his bank account well, already. That's the right call to make. Yeah? Yeah. Call yeah. the bank. You call you, you know who your bank is, right? Yeah. yeah call yeah. them up and say, hey, I got this invoice. Um, look for a, a, an account. Tell them. Uh, somebody says they're going to be debiting my account $499.99. That's a fraudulent transaction if that yeah. happens. Yeah. So obviously that didn't happen. Right. Uh, what they were after here was was for him to call and then the scam right. begins. And then they will, <laughs> then they will install all kinds of malicious software on his computer. And, right. Um, yeah. Right. It, it's just a a bad situation from there on out. But I have to say, I felt a little uh, bad because as much as I do to try to prepare him mm-hmm. against these sorts of things, he was already on his way down the path. Right. He had called the bad guys yeah. before checking with me. Yeah. Despite and me saying to him over and over again, don't do that. Don't do that. Right. Check with me. Call, send these things to me. They're, they're always scams. Yep. Never no, never call. Don't click on anything. And here we were. He had already, because he didn't, because he didn't want to bother me, Joe. Right. Didn't want to bother me. Didn't right. want to be a bother. So for a couple days, he had been trying to call the bad guys to give them his money. <laughs> they were just, probably going to get more than 500 bucks if they well, had they may have. Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, he... 
I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, my, I'd say my dad is pretty sharp and he's pretty savvy. But at the same time, he was halfway down the path with right. these folks. So, right. No, that, and that's, that's a key part. Everybody likes to think, oh, this would never happen to me. I wouldn't fall for this. Right. Uh, you know, we all fall for these things. At some point in time, something is, going, something is going to trip a trigger in your head and you're just going to just be sucked in. Yeah. Uh, it's very important to have people that you can call and people that you can listen to um, that can you can bounce ideas off of. Yeah. Well, and he said— it's funny, too, because when we were talking about it and I was sort of talking him down, uh, I said, Dad, just throw it away. Right. Just delete it. He, and he was saying, he said, I can do that? Yeah. Yeah. Just throw it away. And I don't have to contact the bank? No. Well, I mean, so, but, but he doesn't said, have Dad, to contact they, the they, bank. They, but... I said, Dad, it's a scam. Right. They, they, didn't, they didn't contact your bank. Right. It's fine if you want to check with them. Great. Sure. If it makes you feel better, yep. great. But that's not what this scam is. Right. Right. So— your yeah, bank I, is fine. You're fine. Delete it and get on with your life and hopefully, you know, live to fight another day. But I think that him, him calling the bank will make him feel better, and that's why he should do it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and for no other reason. You're right. It doesn't do anything for the scam because the scam has not actually uh, been pulled on him yet. This is just right. the hook for the scam. He's, yes. He's hooked in, yeah. but he hasn't actually been victimized yet. Right. So— but if if calling the bank and and uh, telling them about this and say be on the lookout for a fraudulent transaction, if that puts his mind at ease, that is well worth the time it takes to make the call. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So uh, I, I'm not you know there's nothing for me to link to here. This is a pretty common scam. Right. Uh, you know, tech support scam. I guess is how we would categorize it. Yeah. And I see a lot of these going around from uh, pretending to be from places like Best Buy. There's one that makes the rounds that uh, pretends to be from like Norton Antivirus, from McAfee, you know, all these consumer-facing tech brands. Mm -hmm. And it's this exact same thing. They say, we're going to, hey, good good news. We're going to auto-renew your subscription. And, and you of course, you don't have a subscription. Right. So they get you on the phone and then they got you. Yeah. <laughs> Does your dad listen to this podcast? No. No. <laughs> no. Does my dad listen to this podcast? <laughs> Joe, I love you, man. But uh, sorry. Does my my no no my dad? Oh gosh, no. I have let let me. I bought my dad a remote control for his TV that has fewer buttons. Joe. Okay, I get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's where that's where we are. With I empathize my dad. with that. No, there's no way he could handle uh, a, a podcast subscription. Okay. No, no. I just like, love my dad. It's not his thing. <laughs> so, but, and you know what? I could go to him every week when I visit him and just do it live. You just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just play it out of your, out of your phone. <laughs> no, just, just do it. Just me. Just, oh, you know, just, oh. just do a live performance for him. I, I, maybe, from the maybe one day you and I can go over and do it in person. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> just sit down with him. <laughs> have a, a conversation. Best of, a best of version of the show. Maybe yes. it'll help out and, uh, as we say, help inoculate my, my, my dear, dear father <laughs> for, yes. for some of these things. All right, that is my story this week. Joe, time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from an anonymous listener who writes, Hello, favorite podcast men. 
Oh. Hey, we're someone's favorite. <laughs> That's nice. Like, it is a pleasure to write to you. Oh. This was sent to me on an email address I once set up for a security camera I tried to install but never got working properly. Mm-hmm. I guess the company got breached. It thinks it was D-Link. Okay. Uh, which it makes sense. I think we've heard of D-Link breaches. Uh, it's interesting that he set up an email just for a camera, which is a good idea, I think. Emails are pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, but he says at the— uh, at the, at the end of his note, he says it, he wonders if these emails ever work. And I, I think they do work. And that's sure. why you keep getting them. Right, right. Um, because, the, you know, it's – this is just a uh, an advanced fee scam email. But, you know, like we've seen so many of these before. But the, the wording is terrible. Mm-hmm. All right. It goes like this. Hello, dearest one. It's my pleasure to write you, and I know you are good. My name is Mrs. Fong Dung. I was born in Hung Yen, Vietnam. But I lived with my husband in Whistler, Canada for a long time until he died. I have been suffering from cancer and have a short life to go. I lost my husband in June. Meanwhile, before my husband's death, he worked on a contract of $1,800,000 U.S. dollars only with the American government. But his death took him before the money was transferred to my bank account. My husband was a philanthropist before his death. He also encouraged me to help the poor, orphans, and widows. Since we got married, we couldn't have children until death separates us. I have deposited $800,000 to the hospital for my treatment. Now, due to my state of health, I want to send the remaining $1 million to you so that you will help me give it to the poor and widows in your country. As ordered by my late husband, because we have no children to inherit the money, I do not discriminate against religion, ethnicity when controlling this project. How noble. I pray that God will give you a kind heart to take care of this project. I will not be there to watch you for this project, but God will be there to see you. You have to take 30% for the money for your personal use and use the rest for charity. Please help me to fulfill my last wish. Reply back to me in the email below for more details on how you will receive the money without any complications. Yours faithful, Mrs. Fong Dong. <laughs> this is um, is very interesting. I think. Well, I mean, it's just it's typical. It's typical. Five, a couple things wrong with it. First off, the English is a little bit broken, so yeah. it looks like it may have run through a translator. Maybe it was written by someone who isn't a native English speaker. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I love when you yell because the one one million eight hundred thousand U.S. dollars only is in all caps. Right. Uh, that's there to catch your attention. Yes. Um, <laughs> Another another point here is that she has deposited $800,000 into the hospital for her treatment mm-hmm. in Canada, which has oh, I didn't think about socialized that. medicine. So she, nobody right. in Canada pays $800,000 for uh, medical treatment. No, I was going to say here in the States, that'll get you a few aspirin. Right, but. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I didn't catch that. That's a good That's a good one. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of red flags in here, but, you, you know, these are— you know, we read these because we know they're 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 scams, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we look for the holes in them. But if somebody's look not looking at this from a uh, from a standpoint of skepticism, then that's how they fall for this, right? And hey, take thirty percent of the money for my personal use. Yeah, it's three hundred thousand dollars. I'm only following the the good widow's uh, request here, right? Right, her instructions. She wanted me to take three hundred grand. For my own use. So right. I'm just being a good person. So what happens here is if you reply to this email, you'll get uh, advanced fee requests, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you might actually get um, get 
request for your personal identifiable information and bank account information, right. and they may try to steal money from you that way. Uh, this is just a scam, just the the tip of the spear of the scam. Yeah. And by the way, if you start paying advance fees, this is what I like to say every single time, you will always just pay advance fees until you either run out of money or stop giving it to them. That's right. That's what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Uh, thanks. Thanks to our listener for sending that in. We do appreciate it. We would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. It's great to welcome Curtis Minder back to the show. He is the CEO of an organization called GroupSense. And our conversation today centers on some new legislation that may affect small and medium-sized businesses. Here's my conversation with Curtis Minder. The ransomware cases that we see and hear about on the news are often very focused on the larger companies. For every one of those that we hear about, there's probably thousands you know, our sample size at group sense is, is, is what it is, but, and many of these go unreported, but probably thousands of small businesses that are being hit uh, that aren't being paid attention to or, or addressed. And unfortunately for a lot of the small businesses, you know, they, they end up in a situation where, you know, they don't have the economic resources to recover. For them, more than for the larger companies, the situation ends up where they have to make a decision to either go out of business or pay pay the ransom. Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, Congress uh, in its own special way, and by that I mean slowly, is, has, uh, is working on some, some things to assist here. But uh, I understand in your mind, maybe this isn't going to uh, provide the relief that some of these small and medium-sized businesses need. Well, you know, any step in a positive direction is, is good. Um, but I don't think that the small business community is represented well enough in Congress. And I have met with the small business um, folks there, the, the committee lead there, and talked about this. And we're in agreement. I, they, they, the, it, the problem for them also is that because a lot of these go unreported, and they go unreported for a number of reasons, you know, primarily – shame um, or, or embarrassment is part of that. Um, fear of, of retribution from law enforcement, uh, just lack of knowledge of, of, of the, the circumstances there. But, you know, the metrics that would drive policy from a small business perspective aren't really clear. Um, so that's a, that's a hard thing to overcome. But yeah, the, the, ultimately what I've been campaigning for, uh, I'm using that word sort of loosely, <laughs> what I've been campaigning for is if, if we need to try to find a way to curb ransomware payments, then, you know, simply making that illegal or forcing reporting um, aren't going to solve that necessarily. They're, they're, in fact, they may drive behavior underground. What we need is to, to provide some third option for small businesses beyond, you know, go out of business, pay a ransom, um, perhaps, you know, even a subsidized program uh, to help recover or prevent Obviously, prevention, in my mind, is always the best option, and that's usually the case in everything in life. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the cheapest yeah. and best option, right? Yeah. What What do you imagine something like this could look like? How, how in a practical way, how could it play out? 
Well, I don't. I don't want to uh, turn a blind eye to to some of the work that, like for example, CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, are already doing um, from a sort of a, a public service um, announcement perspective, where they're where they're they're promoting best practices around cyber hygiene and and things like that. So you know that's part of the prevention effort. So let's let's give them kudos for for taking that first step, but perhaps you know taking some of the macro level data that we have. About, about the cyber attack landscape. And, and we're talking a little bit about ransomware here, but also keep in mind that one of the, you know, there's a number of other cyber attacks that are occurring at, in volume across um, not just large companies, but small businesses, like, for example, the business email compromise that could be prevented uh, with a little bit of cyber hygiene education and perhaps some subsidized program and, and if we if we took the macro level data and we looked at it and said there is a return on investment keeping you know fiat liquid capital in the US economy <laughs> which by the way I, you know I don't have to say this out loud but I should I guess small businesses make up most of the US GDP and more than half the jobs typically <laughs> so they're they're kind of important to, <laughs> I would argue you know collectively they're they're critical infrastructure right so um, if we could take a look at that data and, and, and determine an ROI or return on investment for a subsidized program to help them fund some of the defenses and in, in, in prevention efforts and then potentially even provide some remediation if it occurs anyway that would be amazing hmm so, I mean, we're, are we thinking along the lines of, you know, other public programs we have? I mean, you know, we have clean water. We have, uh, there are organizations like FEMA who come in and, and help clean up after there's been a, national, a natural disaster. Are, are we thinking along those sorts of lines? Yeah, and I do think that, that some of the efforts under DHS and CISA, CISA are, are headed in that direction, but the, the um, legislation hasn't quite caught up. <laughs> hmm. You know, I, I was recently uh, having a conversation with some folks from my local FBI field office, and they were saying how an effort for them is really to have outreach so that these small and medium business owners know uh, that they're a resource, that they should reach out to the FBI if they have a problem, and they're not going to be audited. You know, the FBI right. is not going to come through and, and rifle through all of their paperwork. You know, they are actually here to help. Yeah, the, the that's... Uh refreshing to hear we obviously work tactically with the FBI field offices as as we go through these cases and um i the only downside to that is that they would also probably tell you that they're overextended so they're they're simultaneously offering their hand but they're but what they're not telling you is we don't have a whole lot of resources <laughs> to to use on it and the, and the smaller the case the less likely they're they're going to be able to allocate resources to it so again once again small businesses are sort of falling to the bottom of the priority pile. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll restate it. One small business, two small businesses, you know, not a major impact. But if, if this is occurring every day and, and we're talking about thousands of attacks, you know, and we're not able to measure it effectively, what, if, what impact is that long-term going to have on national security and the economy? Um, so, I, you know, I'm just trying to raise a flag you know, myself, uh, both public speaking, uh, volunteering at Chambers of Commerce. I just did a TEDx talk on the topic, trying to promote um, good cyber hygiene and, and behavior on the small businesses. Also, what I found is a lot of small businesses still feel like this isn't going to happen to them. So they're not, they don't understand the why well enough. And um, it is highly likely that they are a target. And so we, we have to get the word out that you're not 
just because you're, you're a small, you know, I don't know, um, accounting firm in, in middle America doesn't mean that this isn't going to happen to you. You know, in terms of communications with, you know, you mentioned like a chamber of commerce or, you know, even uh, making a phone call or, or writing a letter to our representatives, what sorts of things should we be asking for? What should we be advocating here? You know, communication, I think, is kind of a backbone of, of all of this is, you know, one of the things that we have to we have to get out there is that it, it is okay to report this. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm just getting back to the macro level data. It, in order to get people to, to get off out of their seats and, and make changes, um, they need to understand the impact. And right now, you know, many, not just the small business ones, but many of these cyber attacks are, are kind of swept under the rug to the best of the ability of the victim um, for a number of reasons. And so we need, we need to certainly promote uh, transparency and communication, at least with law enforcement about this so that we can get that macro level data. Um, and then, you know, prevention programs are, are, are key. Uh, you know, we, we actually, out of group sense, launched a nonprofit that partners with universities, uh, that trains university students to assess and make some of the cyber hygiene changes for small businesses in the university communities. They do that for free. They get school credit and get paid to do it. And um, so just on a community by community basis, you know, I would say even to my, my, uh, my hacker colleagues at DEF CON, you know, go, go, go to your chamber of commerce and, and have these conversations with your local businesses, right? It, it's, a, it's really a, a communication first uh, issue. Are you optimistic that we're headed in the right direction here? Do you, do you sense that uh, things are getting better? It's really hard to say because, you know, again, a lot of the stuff is, is, is going unreported. Our sample size, you know, is, is what it is. And we, the number of cases we get, you know, hasn't really changed. <laughs> um, mm. So those indicators indicate that it was sort of status quo. Um, but I think from an awareness and a policy perspective and some of the things I see um, CESA doing and, and, you know, the, the way that the FBI has organized their response, I think those are all positive uh, steps um, that are that are that we're undergoing um, policy next, right? The policy needs to catch up to that. Where do you stand on mandatory reporting? I mean, is is that overall a good thing, or might it lead to unintended consequences? I think the spirit of it is is good. I you know the intention and the spirit of it is a, is a good thing, and and the potential for it to impact policy and, and national security is good. Um, you know. Like any other kind of uh, reporting or or data sort of um, stewardship, you know, you always have the concerns that that data gets leaked or you know that the victim data gets leaked at our government level. And so it's as long as they're putting the right protections around the people who are reporting to protect their privacy, uh, that's I think that's key. But yes, I think it's generally a good thing. Joe, what do you think? First off, it's always great to have Curtis back. Mm-hmm. I, I like listening to what Curtis has to say. Uh, I I think there there is a huge business opportunity that's being missed by providing cybersecurity services to small and medium-sized businesses. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe other people out there have those great ideas and have thought about this and then tried to sell it to small and medium-sized businesses, but they don't have the money to buy it. 
And that's really the key problem is that generally small businesses and medium-sized businesses don't have a ton of cash. Right. So my opinion on this matter is this has to be something that's done at scale, Mm -hmm. right? There has to be a company that is founded with the idea that we're going to represent security services for for these businesses. And we're going to just have some economy of scale by the fact that we have so many customers. And we're essentially going to treat them like our our own employees and our own security model. And we're we're going to say, you're going to get our security model. And that's how it's going to work. Right. so there's a free billion-dollar idea for somebody out there if you want to start that up. Um, additionally, these companies are really not focused on their, on their own security, right? They're yeah. focused on making money and, and being a business because a lot of these small businesses are family-owned businesses where they have to put food on the table and they have to pay their employees. Yeah. You know, having, having employees is, is a big burden in a, or is a big emotional burden in a small business, yeah, right? Yeah, huge responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. Other people's exactly. well-being. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and it's, uh, it's terrible when these companies are faced with the two options of either going out of business or paying some ransom. Mm-hmm. That is a decision I, I would never want to make. I'm sure nobody wants to make it, but it's one you need to think about, right? Right. right. Um, you know, th- that exercise I talk about where, you know, if you, you, you take your security team and you, you pick up the newspaper and you look at the latest cyber breach and you say, how would we respond to this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you as a small business owner or a medium-sized business owner have to, have to do that. You know, you get with your management if you have management or just sit down with your employees and go, how would we do this? Right. You know, take, take five minutes and think about it. Right. It's, it's not, a, not a bad exercise to do at any level. Yeah. Prevention is definitely the cheapest option. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and... You know, that, that's – and Curtis is 100 percent correct. That's the case in everything. It's the case in medical stuff. It's the case in, um, in, in cybersecurity. It's the case in just physical security and worrying about like – you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper to make sure you lock your car at night than it is to try to get your car repaired after it's been stolen and taken for a joyride. <laughs> right, right? Right, right. It's cheaper in time, money, and effort. Yeah. And peace of mind. Yeah. Uh, when we, we're talking about legislation – Legislation, I'm not sure that regulation helps small businesses. You and I have talked at length about the banking situation in our country. There aren't a lot of small banks anymore. Right. And the reason there aren't a lot of small banks is because the regulatory burden placed on on banks is uh, is great for these small banks, and they can't be competitive. Yeah. Uh, Now, there are some small banks that are still around, and I, I generally like to use them. Uh, because if one of those fails, it's not really a problem for the federal government and for the F- uh, FDIC, mm-hmm. right? But if a large bank fails, that might be a problem, right? This concept of too big to fail. Yeah. That for because because there's things that are too big to fail. I don't keep my money with those. Hmm. That's just my personal choice. Right. Right. Uh, another great option is credit unions. You can use credit unions. Sure. If you if you're you probably qualify for some credit union somewhere, use that. You yeah. get a lot of great banking services at lower costs. Yeah. But I digress, as I often do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to get back to what Curtis said, if you own a small business, you got to take cybersecurity seriously. You are a target. This is one of the things I. In my talks, I frequently say, "Yes, you are a target. Yeah. Even if you're an individual, you're a target." Bad guys have a way of monetizing just about everything you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, they even now have ways of monetizing your cash by getting you to go buy Bitcoin. I, I, I can't think of a time in, in history when somebody could remotely scam you out of your cash. Mm. Now you can do it. 
mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so your best bet is to practice basic secu- security hygiene, cybersecurity hygiene. Yeah. Learn what that is and and do it. Uh, and the other thing is it is okay to report this to law, to law enforcement if you've been compromised. Right. And Curtis makes a comment in passing here that a lot of people don't want to do that because they think for some reason they're going to be the target of law enforcement after that. Yeah. Um, and – my conversations that. with the FBI says that's not true. Right. And they're they're trying to be really clear about that. If you, if you go to law enforcement, if you go to your local FBI field office, which if you have something happen, you absolutely should do, uh, that's not going to trigger an audit. Right. You know, <laughs> just, it's just not how it works. Right. But yeah. I, I absolutely understand the fear of that. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, you know, the government is a very large, multi-tentacled uh, organism. If yeah. You, if, you know, and from the small business person's perspective, they're, they're there as an adversarial agent, not there to help. Yeah. And, you know, and again, we're talking about the level of regulation, which, you know, I, I understand that we need regulation so that terrible things don't happen. But at the same point in time, it, it is the, the small and medium sized businesses are the ones that, uh, that suffer the most for that. Yeah. And I, I really, this whole point about, um, basic cyber hygiene, I think is really important because, I believe that you could take care of the vast majority of these issues by going through one of the large providers. Let's say just like your email, right? right? Let's go through one of the large providers, the Googles of the world, the Microsofts of the world. You right. know, pay them for a professional-grade account uh-huh. and use something like a YubiKey. Use yep. a, a or, hard, some kind of hardware key, some kind of multi-factor authentication that gets you so far down the line it does. of protecting yourself. It really, yourself. really does. That right. is a great, great suggestion. And it's, and be, and the you know these folks are there. There you're you're allowing their massive resources to do the heavy lifting. Yep. Right. Yep. So, all right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Curtis Minder for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have him visit us here on the show. We do appreciate it. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.